Well, it's pretty obvious that I took today's message title from a children's game that everybody grew up playing. The children's game is Simon Says. And the idea is that a person, a kid, is it. It's Simon. And Simon gets to say whatever Simon wants to say. Whether it's Simon says jump and all the kids jump, or Simon says touch your toes and all the kids touch their toes, the winner of the game is the one who follows what Simon says without breaking that course. That's the winner. Of course, as kids, you can think up some pretty ridiculous things for Simon to say. Like, Simon says, lift both your legs at the same time. Of course, that would be painful to try that. Boom, you'd fall down. But it's a game. In Luke chapter 2, we discover a man not named Simon, but Simeon. And Simeon says some very profound and wonderful things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would be a winner if you were to follow what Simeon says about the Lord Jesus Christ. Simeon is what I call the backstage crew of the Christmas story. He's not a main actor. James Montgomery Boyce refers to these as the little people of Christmas. You know, they're not, they're not in the nativity set. They're not on the Christmas cards. They're not in the carols. The main actors are Jesus, of course, and Mary, and Joseph, and the shepherds, the magi. But when was the last time you saw a little plastic simian for the nativity set? He's not a main actor, and in films, people don't stay and wonder, who's the musical director of this, or who is the second camera, or the gaffer? Typically, we don't sit there to watch those credits. We're interested in the main actors. But I'm drawn to this man because some of the godliest people I've ever known are like Simeon. They are out of the limelight, but they are quietly seeing the life of Jesus develop in them. I would even say that Simeon captures the Christmas spirit. You have an old saintly man waiting to worship Jesus. He's one of those people in Jerusalem who was waiting, expecting the Messiah to come. Not Caesar in Rome. Caesar in Rome, he didn't care that a little Jewish baby was born in Bethlehem, according to some prophets. The Roman Senate wouldn't have lifted a a finger to make any discovery of that. Even the religious leaders in Jerusalem wouldn't walk five miles to see if what the Magi said was true. But there was a particular group of people in Israel who had been anticipating, looking for, expecting, and waiting for this very event to happen. One of them was named Simeon. Verse 25 is where our story begins. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now skip down just a few verses. Not only was he waiting for the consolation of Israel, but there were others. In verse 38, a woman in the temple named Anna was in that crowd. Coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Israel. And it doesn't stop there. In chapter 3, John the Baptist will come on the scene and look at verse 15. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Messiah or not. So Simeon was one of those characters who were just waiting around for the Messiah to show up. And they thought it would happen at any moment. Now all of this that we just read about of Simeon, it took place about one month after Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. About a month or so after he had been circumcised and after the days of purification for the woman had reached their fulfillment, then they made their trip from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, about a month after Jesus was born. Which brings up the question, well, when was that? When was Jesus born? Answer, no one really knows. I know it's going to sort of burst your whole Christmas vibe, perhaps, but one thing that scholars would agree on, and that is Jesus, when he was born, it certainly wouldn't have been December 25th. And that's because anybody who studies weather patterns in the Middle East and how people keep their flocks, shepherds never watched their flocks out in the open fields at night in December. That was reserved for the warmer months of the year, from early March through October. Then they were brought inward. And uh, the earliest dates that people can come up with, like Clement of Rome, uh, Clement of Alexandria, uh, he said it would be May 20th. That's when he said Jesus was born, May 20th. I don't know if you'll celebrate Christmas at May 20th, but that's the earliest reckoning we have. Others said it was April 18th or 19th, and still others, March the 28th. But the consensus seems to be that it was in the springtime rather than in the winter. So you say, well, where did we get December 25th? There was a guy who first introduced the idea in Rome. His name was Hippolytus. And he believed that Jesus Christ was exactly 33 years of age when he died, that he was uh, conceived and crucified on the same date, March 25th. So what he did is he calculated nine months from the conception, which he said was March 25th and came up with December 25th. It it would seem that the early Christians used December 25th in Rome to counteract a pagan festival, a pagan worship 
of the winter solstice known as Saturnalia. And so to counteract that, they thought, let's bring Christ into this. Let's worship Christ during this holiday. That's probably how December 25th got used. So it doesn't matter when. It matters that he came and that he was born. And that's what we want to look at today. Let's look at what Simeon says in the temple publicly and to Mary and Joseph. And as we do, let's discover a few things. What's so important about Christmas? What did God think that people needed most in sending his son? And what would the fate of this baby be? Moreover, what would the fate of all of those who reject this baby be? All of these will be addressed and touched on by the text. But, but, but let's begin in verse 25 and let's get a, a fix on this guy. Let's get a description of Simeon. We actually have a threefold description of this man where he's described personally, spiritually, and supernaturally. Now, personally, not much is written of him. Just his name is given. And we know he's a man. No background is given. We don't know his education. We don't know his occupation. He doesn't seem to be all that prominent of a person in Jerusalem because he's never mentioned in any of the other Gospels. He appears here and then he's gone. We don't even know his last name. We can deduce that he was probably an older gentleman. And that's because verse 26 and verse 29 refer to his death, which it would seem would be imminent. Verse 26, it was revealed by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 29, he says, I can die a happy man, in effect. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Tradition says he was 113 years old. That's just tradition. We don't know. But we can, with Pretty good foundation. Guess that he was an older man in Jerusalem waiting for Jesus. Now, because he was Jewish and he would not have trimmed the corners of his beard, he was a Jewish man with a beard. And if he was an older man, he would have been an older man with a white beard at Christmas. And I bring that up because there's another man with a white beard at Christmas who has stolen the limelight away from Simeon and even Jesus himself named Santa Claus or Saint Nick as he's affectionately called. And I bring him up because honestly, if Saint Nicholas could have seen what the Western world has done with him, he would be embarrassed and ashamed. He would be. Now you say, Skip, you're talking about him like you believe in him. That's because I do. I don't believe in the Santa Claus who lives at a toy factory in the North Pole. But you ought to know something. Santa Claus is based upon a true figure named Nicholas. Hence the term Saint Nick. And did you know that that Nicholas was a pastor in the 4th century? His name was Nicholas of Myra, M-Y-R-A. In a little province of Lycia in the region of Anatolia, which is modern day Turkey, southern Turkey. In fact, he was a prominent clergyman because at the famous Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., he stood up for the deity of Christ and the Trinity 
against the heretic named Arius who denied that. But he was known principally for his compassion. It is said that there was a poor man who had a few daughters, and because he was poor, he couldn't afford to give them money for a dowry for their marriage. And so they were about to go into prostitution when Nicholas of Myra gave them each a bag of gold, enough money to provide a suitable dowry for an honorable marriage. He was known for that compassion, so that when he died, people would give gifts to each other in his honor on his feast day. Now, I'm bringing him up because I don't want you to get Santa Claustrophobic this year. And a lot of people do, oh, Santa Claus, this evil, demonic. Actually, he was a saintly man who, in the name of Christ, gave gifts and stood up for the Lord Jesus. That's why I say he would be utterly embarrassed and ashamed if he would have seen what we have done with his personage in modern times. Well, Simeon. Not much is said of him personally, but a lot is said of him spiritually. Look at his spiritual description. This man was just, it says, or righteous, right with God, devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he was waiting for the Messiah. There was an ancient Jewish prayer that said, May I see the consolation of Israel. May I see the coming of the Messiah, in other words. So he's just, he's devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. I don't know if you picked up on this, but three times in these couple of verses, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in conjunction to his life. Notice that. It says the Holy Spirit was on him, verse 25. It was revealed to him, verse 26, by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die till he saw the Messiah. Verse 27, he came by the Spirit into the temple. So whatever we don't know of him personally, we sure know a lot about him spiritually. And so it seems, and it's an interesting trait throughout the Bible, that God notices all the things we don't notice. We'd want to know about him. We'd want to know his background, how tall he was, what he liked to do for a hobby, what he did for a job. We just know what his name is, Simeon. He was a guy in Jerusalem. But what God notices and what the scripture highlights is the inward, not the outward. To me, that's significant. When Samuel was looking for a new king and he came to the house of Jesse and he saw somebody that he thought looked royal, name was Eliab, God had to say, I've rejected him. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's what God notices. We, as human beings, are all about the outward. God's all about the inward. We want to make an impression. We have mirrors in bathrooms and offices and cars, and it's who we are. We're going to go to a place we want to look right. We want to make the first impact. I heard about a lawyer, and if you're an attorney, my apologies. Not that you're an attorney, but that I have to resort to a lawyer joke. (laughs) There was this young attorney, first day on the job, first day in a brand new office, and he wanted to make an impression. He saw a man getting out of his truck and coming toward the office, and this lawyer thought, great, my first prospective client, I want to impress him. And so he picked up the phone and acted like he was having a conversation. 
And he said things like, yes, John, um, yeah, this is a big merger we're working on, isn't it? Five million dollars, I don't know if it'll be enough, but I'll check into it personally, blah, 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 hung up the phone. And as the man stood in the doorway, the young lawyer said, and may I help you? And the man said, no, I'm here to hook up your phone. (laughs) That lawyer was all show and no go. Simeon was all go. Spiritually, no show personally. Look, Look at verse 26. He's not just described personally and spiritually, but supernaturally. That is... It had been revealed to him, this is very rare, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, Christos, Messiah. So I picture a guy going into the temple every day. It's a big complex, the court of the Gentiles and then the court of the men, the court of Israel, and he's looking around. He sees different people and he wonders... I wonder if if that's the one. Or a couple with their babies. Could that be the one? And then he'd go home. Next day, go there and go home. And one day, he happened to come at the exact same moment, prompted by the Holy Spirit, as a poor couple from Nazareth who had given birth in Bethlehem. And now they're five miles away from that in Jerusalem. They have their baby. And the Holy Spirit nudges his heart and says to the old guy, That's the one. That's the one. So can you picture old Simeon moving his way over to the young couple, bending down, saying, Excuse me, you don't know me. My name's Simeon. Would you mind if I just held your baby for a moment? Stunned, but appreciative, they would have said, Sure. And picked up baby Jesus, and then he cocked his head back and uttered this beautiful poetic prayer. I can die a happy man, Lord. You promised me I'd see this day. I've seen it. Your salvation, a light to the Gentiles, the glory of Israel. Gave the baby back. And it says, Joseph and Mary marveled. The Greek word thalmazo. I would translate it, they dropped their jaw. They were blown away at what they heard. And let's look at what they heard. Let's look at these next verses. After his description, his proclamation is shown us in verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That little burst of poetic praise is divided into two sections. He tells us about God the Father, then he tells us about God the Son. He tells us about the faithfulness of God in keeping his word, and then the fate of this baby, God's salvation. The first thing he says is, basically, I, I can go, I can die, I can die a happy man. You made me a promise, and you've kept your promise. You know, Christmas reminds us that we serve a God who keeps his promises. Anybody can make a promise. God's all about keeping them. And here's a man who had a personal promise by God 
that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. Some years ago, Time Magazine did a little article on a teacher from Canada named Everett Storms, who had read through the entire Bible 26 times. And on his 27th time, he wanted to tally up, count by hand, all of the promises that God made to mankind. took him a year and a half to read through the 27th time, and he counted 7,487 promises God made to mankind. Now you think of that. You've got 7,487 things God has promised. That's enough to keep you going the next year. And some of those promises you've leaned on this last year, haven't you? And God's been faithful. God's brought you through. Through all the storms, all the uncertainties, you've been able to lean on God's faithfulness. And He brings that up in His psalm of praise. Let's see what He says about Jesus now, the fate of this child. Look at what He calls this baby. For my eyes have seen your salvation. This baby is God's salvation. Soterion. That's the Greek word. That's because the Bible was written in Greek. But I sort of think that Simeon, being Jewish, being in the temple, waiting for the consolation of Israel, could have uttered these words in Hebrew. And if he did, it would have sounded like this. For my eyes have seen your Yeshua. That was the Hebrew name of Jesus, your Yeshua. Salvation is what it means. One of the important facts that we must all recognize about salvation is that salvation is a person. It's not a list. It's not a code of ethics. It's not something you do or work toward Salvation, God's salvation, is a person. And without that person, there is no salvation. None. Peter will say in Acts chapter 4, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And Simeon recognized that when that Jesus was a baby. My eyes have seen your salvation. This is the one. And that's a truth that we find through the New Testament. Jesus never said, follow my teachings. He said, follow me. He personalized it. He never said, my teachings are the way, the truth, and the life. Just keep all the red words He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come to the Father unless he comes through me. That's personal. The Bible never says, as many as kept his example or his teachings were given the right to become children of God, but as many as believed in him, personalizing it, have the right, the authority to become children of God. E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary to India, once said, Christianity has its creeds, but it is not a creed. Christianity has its rights, R-I-T-E-S, but it is not a right. Christianity has its institutions, but it is not an institution. Christianity, said Stanley Jones, is Christ, or rather our response to him. That's a lot to recognize for this old guy in the temple that day. 
My eyes have seen your salvation. That would be his primary task, by the way. Jesus' primary function on the earth was salvation. That's his primary task. It wouldn't be to give speeches. It wouldn't be to heal people. It wouldn't be to pat babies on the head. It wouldn't be to start a new religion. His primary task was to save people. He said it. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. The angel said that to Mary when she found out she was pregnant. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the whole reason God stepped out of eternity and into time, the reason Jesus came as deity and the wrapping of humanity was this, salvation. Notice also in verse 32... He's called something else. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, we don't have time to develop, but I'd love to just develop that verse. That'd be a great message. Because in that verse, the first half was fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. The second half will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. It's a light to the world. He said that himself. A light to the Gentiles, the nations. But the glory of the people of Israel wouldn't be fulfilled till he comes the second time. Revelation 14, where he stands on Mount Zion and gathers the Jewish elect at that time. But a light. And here's Simeon looking at Jesus, saying these words. And what he's doing is quoting Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6, reads, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You know what that means? Think about that. That means that this salvation, this light, isn't just local, it's global. It's not just for the Jewish people, it's for the whole world in Hebrew, Hagoyim, the nations, the world, the, the Gentiles. Sometimes people say, well, you know, Christianity is a Western religion. Last time I checked, it's an Eastern religion. It came, comes from the Middle East. And then the message spread to the disciples to the ends of the earth. It came from there and it came to us. But it's not just for us or it's not just for them It's for everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's why Jesus, the Messiah, when he came to Israel, and his ministry was granted local. It was just in Judea and a little bit in Samaria and up up north around Galilee. It was localized. But before he left, he told his disciples, Now you go into all the world and bring this message. Preach the gospel. To every creature. Because it's a worldwide gospel. A worldwide message. A light to the Gentiles. I want you to think about that. Next time you look at your Christmas tree. Now you might think. I don't have a Christmas tree. I'm a Christian. Well. I feel sorry for you. I love Christmas trees. And I love lights on Christmas trees. And I love to plug in the Christmas tree and turn the lights out in the rest of the house. Because that little visual gives me the picture of what we just read. That Jesus is the light of the world. And we have good historic precedent for that. 
The modern Christmas tree came to us from West Germany and became the Christmas tree around the 16th century. Before that, it was called the paradise tree. And the Germans would cut out a fir tree out of the forest, bring it inside their house, and put apples on it. It was symbolic of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They said December 24th was the feast of Adam and Eve, hence the paradise tree. As time went on, they put wafers on it and shiny stuff on it and became called the Christmas tree. It was Martin Luther who put candles on the Christmas tree and took children and had them gather around it and said, You see all the lights on this Christmas tree? They are there to picture that the world was in darkness and Jesus Christ is the light of the world. So you think about that next time you look at your Christmas tree. Just sort of soak that in. Jesus shined light in darkness. Or look at it this way. Jesus Christ is God's flashlight so that the world can get out of its darkness. Would the world agree with that, I wonder? If you were to go to Herod's palace in Jerusalem or Caesar's palace, not in Las Vegas, in Rome. (laughs) Funny how we have to correct that. If you were to say, excuse me, but do you leaders believe that the world needs light because it's in darkness? They'd laugh at you and say, are you kidding? You were in darkness before we got here, before Rome gave you light. We gave you the Pax Romana. We gave you the road system. We gave you the military structure. We brought light. If you were to make it over to Athens with the philosophic schools of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and say, gentlemen, do you think the world is in darkness and needs light? They would laugh at you and say, are you kidding? We're the guys that brought light to the world. We enlightened all the rest of you. If you were to go to Jerusalem and speak to the learned religious leaders like the Pharisees and the scribes and say, excuse me, do you guys think that the world's dark and we need enlightenment? They might say, well, yeah, the rest of the world's dark. We're not. We're enlightened. We're bringing light to our traditions and our knowledge. If you were to ask the modern person today, do you think the world is dark and needs light. They might say, well, the world isn't perfect, but we've come a long way. We're enlightened now. We've evolved to a higher state. We now are advanced technologically. We have computers. We can clone things. We have iPhones. We're enlightened. Well, Simeon says, the world is in darkness. And the world needs God's light so it can get out. Now, why is that? Why is it that when you read the prophets or you read the apostles or you read the words of Jesus himself, you have this common metaphor of darkness and the need of light? Here's why. Because mankind is infected with a deadly virus. A deadly virus. Everyone has a deadly virus the moment they're born. Every person is SIN positive when they're born into this world. And it's a far deadlier virus than the AIDS virus. It's far worse because it has eternal consequences if it goes unchecked and unhealed. The world is in darkness because of sin. 
Not everybody likes the word. Not everybody agrees with that definition. Psychologists say, well, it's a behavioral disorder. Sociologists say it's a social lag, a cultural lag. Human rights activists and minority groups might say the root problem is racism. Socialists will say it's class struggle. The Bible says the heart is darkened by sin and needs God's light. So here's Simeon, this old guy. He's been waiting for this. And he sees that baby and he goes, this is it. I can die a happy man. That baby is God's salvation. That baby is the light that shows the world out of its darkness. Let's, let's finish this up. He finishes up with a prediction. He turns now to Joseph and Mary, who in verse 33, Joseph and his mother, that is the baby's mother, marveled. Thaumadzo were blown away, dropped their jaw at those things which were spoken of him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Boy, that's some heavy stuff to lay on a young couple, isn't it? You imagine having your baby dedicated? There's an old guy holding your baby. And after he prays, he turns to you and says, Oh, by the way, your baby... Is going to be one of the most divisive people in history. Your baby is going to be loved and hated. Very loved and very hated. The New Living Translation translates one of these verses. This child will be rejected by many and be their undoing. But he will be the greatest joy to others. Imagine being a young couple. First baby. And a guy lays that on you. Your baby's going to be the most loved and most hated individual in the land. But it was true. And it still is true. It's funny how people feel about Jesus. And most people have a feeling about him one way or the other. It seems that it's either, I love him, or don't mention that name. You might want to try this in a group of people. Try this at a Christmas party. People gathered around, they're having fun, down in the drinks. Mention the name Jesus Christ, not in a slur like they would, but in a very respectful, even say, I love Jesus Christ, loud enough so the crowd can hear it. Just watch what happens. It's a crowd stopper, guarantee it. <laughs> You'll have every head turned towards you. Verse 35, now they're blown away, this young couple. They're just, they're marveling at this. This old guy saying these things, and now now these personal words. Verse 35 is the first hint of the cross. He says, a sword's going to go right through your heart. I think that refers to Mary who would stand at the foot of the cross with two other Marys, and she would watch her own son die, John chapter 19. She'd see the cruel torture he'd been through and what he's now going through on the cross. She would experience that kind of pain that only a mother can experience in seeing her child suffer. First hint of the cross. First hint of why he came, the cross. 
Now, I don't know how Mary processed all this as time went on. There's a couple hints. Here she's marveling. When the angel announced that she'd have the Messiah, she pondered these things in her heart. Uh, Later on, when Jesus is 12 years of age in the temple, and he says, don't you know I must be about my father's business, Mary pondered those things in her heart. So there must have been levels at which she's understanding, as time goes on, who this child is. As days went on, and she puts all of that together, the angel's announcement, this is going to be the son of the highest. I was a virgin when I birthed him. What Simeon said in the temple, what this boy said to me when he was 12 at the temple. A great book was put out years ago. It's still in wide circulation. One of Max Lucado's first books called God Came Near. And there's a little short chapter called 25 Questions for Mary. Here's a sampling. What was it like watching him pray? How did he respond when he saw other kids giggling during the service in the synagogue? When he saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? When he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? Did you ever see him with a distant look on his face as if he were listening to someone you couldn't hear? How did he act at funerals? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever try to count the stars with him and succeed? Did you ever catch him pensively looking at the flesh of his own arm while holding a clod of dirt? When someone referred to Satan, how did he act? Did you ever accidentally call him Father, what did he and his cousin John talk about as kids? Did his other brothers and sisters understand what was happening? Did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? Well, we don't know. We don't know how that progression came about. It seemed that it did come about. But look at the very end of the verses we've selected. The end of verse 35. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Your son's going to be loved, hated, going to divide people. That the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. In other words, rejecting Jesus Christ will reveal just how lost people really are. Are. Think about it. God gives to mankind a gift, the best gift. Here's my son. Here's salvation. Here's a light. Here's a way out of your darkness. I don't want him. It will reveal just how lost people are. So Simeon said, My eyes have seen your salvation. Has God opened your eyes to see his salvation, to receive personally, not a church service, not a Christmas gathering, not a set of teachings, not a Bible reading, but to receive for your own life salvation. To receive for your own life light, enlightenment, to see out of darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful 
that when the fullness of the time had come, just the right time, you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, recognized by those who were waiting and watching and expecting, like Anna and like Simeon, who when he saw the baby said, this is the one, this is it. He is salvation. He is the light of the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. He recognized him. And he worshipped him. Lord, I pray if anyone here at this time, a visiting relative, a friend, curious onlooker, or a longtime churchgoer who hasn't personalized Christ has come today, I pray that this would be the day when you'd open up their eyes and they would see and experience personally your salvation. 